At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, Episode 10, Part 3, The Cold War in the Mediterranean, 1945 to 1950, or the Mediterranean World in the Age of Stalin. So in the last segment, we looked at Italy and Yugoslavia in the post-war period. In this show, we will examine Albania, Greece, and Turkey. Albania had won its independence from the Ottoman Empire in 1912. From 1914 until 1939, like many nations during this period, Albania went through a time of political instability, seeing a series of monarchies and republics until being invaded by Italy in 1939. After being occupied by Italy, Albania became a protectorate and a dependency of Italy governed by the Italian government. In November 1941, small Albanian communist groups established an Albanian Communist Party under the leadership of Invra Hoxha and an 11-man central committee. The party at first had little mass appeal. However, after March 1943, the communists formed a resistance movement known as the National Liberation Movement. Resistance to the occupation grew rapidly as signs of Italian weakness became apparent. At the end of 1942, guerrilla forces numbered no more than eight to 10,000. By the summer of 1943, when Italy collapsed, almost all of the mountainous interior was controlled by the resistance. After the capitulation of Italy in 1943, Nazi Germany occupied Albania, backed with support of Albanian national elements who sided with the Germans. The Germans pushed the, the partisans back into the southern part of the country. However, with the collapse of German forces on the Eastern Front in 1943, the Germans had to withdraw from Albania in late 1944 to avoid being captured by the Soviets. Albania is one of the most devastated countries in Europe during World War II. 200 villages were destroyed, 60,000 houses were destroyed, and about 10% of the population was left homeless. About 30,000 Albanians died in the war. I know 30,000 people might not see, may seem small in contrast to the 300,000 of Italy or the 1 million of Yugoslavia, but Albania only had a population of about a million people in 1939. By November 1944, the communist partisans had taken control of the nation and a provisional government was established with Envra Hoxha as prime minister. In December 1945, Albanians elected a new People's Assembly, but voters were presented with a single list from the communist-dominated Democratic Front to vote for. Official ballot tallies showed that 92% of the electorate voted and that 93% of those who voted chose a Democratic Front ticket. The socialist reconstruction of Albania was launched immediately after the annulling of the monarchy and the establishment of a people's republic. In 1947, Albania's first rail line was completed, with the second completed eight months later. New land reform laws were passed, granting the land to the workers and peasants who tilled it. 
Agriculture became co- cooperative and production increased significantly, leading to Albania becoming agriculturally self-sufficient. By 1955, illiteracy was eliminated among Al- Albania's adult population, a major achievement. However, religious freedoms were severely curtailed during the communist period, with all forms of worship being outlawed. In 1945, the agrarian reform law meant that large swaths of property owned by religious groups, mostly Islamic, were nationalized along with the estates, monasteries, and dioceses. Many believers, along with many priests, were arrested, tortured, and executed. Albania became a Stalinist-style state under Envra Hoxha, stressing national unity and self-reliance. Travel and visa restrictions made Albania one of the most difficult countries to visit or to travel from. Until Yugoslavia's expulsion from the Common Forum in 1948, Albania was effectively a Yugoslav satellite. The insignificance of Albania's standing in the communist world was clearly highlighted when the emerging Eastern European nations did not invite Albania to the September 1947 founding meeting of the Common Forum. Rather, Yugoslavia represented Albania at the Common Forum meetings. Relations between Albania and Yugoslavia, however, declined. When the Albanians began complaining that the Yugoslavs were paying too little for uh, Albanian raw materials and exploiting the Albanians. Seeing an opportunity from the Tito-Stalin split we spoke about in the last segment, Albania entered an orbit around the Soviet Union, and in September 1948, Moscow stepped in to compensate for Albania's loss of Yugoslav aid. The shift proved to be a windfall for Albania because Moscow had a far more to offer than hard-strapped Belgrade. The fact that the Soviet Union had no common border with Albania also appealed to the Albanian regime because it made it more difficult for Moscow to exert pressure on them. Nevertheless, Albania followed Stalin's lead when it came to foreign and economic policy. Before we talk about the events in Greece during this time, I wanted to give you a quick update about the podcast. We have a new website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com. History of the Cold War podcast, one word. So check it out for all of our past episodes and upcoming Cold War content. I also want to give a big thank you to Kathy Zhang, our first Patreon supporter. So if you liked the show, please help support us. Additionally, if you could fill out the survey on the site, it will help us in creating better episodes in the future. Now on with the show. South of Albania, the communists were intent on capturing another Mediterranean state, Greece. Greece as a nation had reestablished its independence in 1832 from the Ottoman Empire. In World War I, Greece sided with the Allies in 1917, although Allied troops had been stationed in Greece since 1915. In the aftermath of the First World War, Greece attempted further expansion into Asia Minor, a region with a large native Greek population at the time, but it was defeated in the Greco-Turkish War of 1919-1922, contributing to a massive flight of Asian Minor Greeks, the following era was marked by instability as over 1.5 million Greek refugees from Turkey had to be integrated into Greek society. Following the catastrophic events in Asia Minor, the monarchy was abolished via referendum in 1924 and the Second Hellenic Republic was declared. In 1935, a royalist uh, general-turned-politician took power after a coup and it abolished the republic holding a rigged referendum after which King George II returned to Greece and was restored to the throne. A coup d'etat followed in 1936 and installed Leonis Maxidis as the head of a dictatorial regime known as the 4th of August regime, inaugurating a period of authoritarian rule that would last with short breaks until 1974. 
Although a dictatorship, Greece remained on good terms with Britain and later the United States. On the 20th of October, 1940, fascist Italy demanded the surrender of Greece, but the Greek administration refused, and in the following Greco-Italian War, Greece repelled Italian forces uh, into Albania, giving the Allies their first victory over Axis forces on land. The country would eventually fall to urgently dispatch German forces during the Battle of Greece, despite the fierce resistance of Greek forces and a British contingent sent uh, to assist the Greeks, but they too were overwhelmed by the Germans and had to retreat. The Nazis proceeded to administer Athens and Saloniki, while other regions of the country were given to Italy and Bulgaria. The occupation brought about terrible hardship for the Greek civilian population. Over 100,000 civilians died of starvation during the winter of 1941 to 1942. Tens of thousands more died because of reprisals by Nazis and collaborators. The country's economy was ruined, and the great majority of Greek Jews were deported and murdered in Nazi concentration camps. In all, some 400,000 Greeks died in the Second World War. The origins of the Greek Civil War lie in the divisions created during the Second World War over which side to support and in the occupation of Greece. In April 1941, King George II and his government escaped to Egypt, where they were proclaimed a government in exile recognized by the Western Allies, but not by the Soviet Union. However, the exiled's government's inability to influence affairs inside Greece rendered it irrelevant in the minds of most Greek people. The power vacuum that the occupation created was filled by several resistance movements that ranged from royalists to communists. The Greek landscape was favorable to guerrilla operations, and by 1943, the Axis forces and their collaborators were in control of only the main towns and connecting roads, leaving the mountainous countryside to the resistance. These resistance groups launched attacks against the occupying powers and set up large espionage networks. The communist leaders of the EAM, however, had planned to dominate in post-war Greece, so they tried to take over or destroy the other Greek resistance groups when they had the opportunity. When liberation came in October 1944, Greece was in a state of crisis, which soon led to the outbreak of the Civil War itself. The British had a long-standing interest in the nation dating back to the early 19th century. Greece geographically guarded the approaches to the Middle East and the Suez Canal, the vital trade artery to the British uh, Raj in India, her colonies in the Far East, and her dominions of New Zealand and Australia in the Pacific. In October 1944, Churchill and Stalin had agreed to split up the Balkans into spears of influence. In the agreement, the Soviet Union would have 90% of influence in Romania and 75% in Bulgaria. The United Kingdom would have 90% in Greece, and they would share 50% in both Hungary and Yugoslavia. Churchill called this a naughty treaty. British troops landed in Greece in October 1944 and helped to liberate the country. However, most of the nation was already liberated, including Athens, the capital. Moreover, the partisans far outnumbered the small British force. Therefore, they could have easily liberated the country and established a communist state there, like in the rest of Eastern Europe. However, the Greek communists were loyal to Stalin, and Stalin kept the terms of his agreement with Churchill, ordering the Greek communists to cooperate with the British. However, in the, in the weeks after the liberation, tensions between the Greek communists and the British flared. The British military elite distrusted the communists. Conversely, the Greek communists mistrusted the British. They were irate at the British for trying to return the king to power. They were also angry with the British and the provisional Greek government for not bringing collaborators to justice and appointing fierce anti-communists to positions of power. On December the 3rd, 1944, the communists walked out of the provisional government and took to the streets in protest. 
they were congregated in Constitution Square in central Athens. For reasons that remain a mystery, Greek police opened fire on the demonstrators, killing at least 10 and wounding 50 more. The British troops then moved in to support the Greek police, and essentially all hell broke loose. The Greek communists immediately attacked local police stations. The British armies, seeing that the Greek police were now overwhelmed, moved in to suppress the communists, and bitter street fighting erupted. At first, the British were pinned down in many places by snipers, but eventually they broke out and into the, quote, red suburbs. But the Greek communists defended their neighborhoods tenaciously. Accordingly, the British brought in 25-pounder artillery and started to bombard the neighborhoods into submission. Fighter planes were also brought in to strafe communist positions. Thousands of civilians were caught up in the crossfire, and hundreds of women and children were killed in indiscriminate artillery barrages. The Greek communists took to the countryside to continue the fight. The British responded by rounding up 15,000 suspected communists and shipped them to camps in the Middle East. The Greek communists responded by taking hostages of their own. However, by the end of January, both sides were exhausted by fighting and agreed to a ceasefire. The Greek communist partisans agreed to lay down their weapons, and the government agreed to try the collaborators. The Greek authorities didn't live up to their end of the agreement, though. Right-wing hit squads rounded up and arrested communists throughout the country, executing thousands. While the British were highly critical of these extrajudicial murders, they applied very little pressure to the Greek government to stop. In response to this, the communists refused to participate in the March 1946 elections against Soviet advice, and the monarchists won in a landslide. That autumn, the monarchists secured the return of the king from exile in a highly questionable referendum. The government then expanded the police forces and escalated their persecution of the communists. By late 1946, many communists felt that they had no choice but to return to the mountains and fight on. Encouraged by the Yugoslavs, the Greek Communist Party launched an insurgency in 1947 to overthrow the royal government and expel the British. The British and Americans saw the renewal of the Greek Civil War as another flagrant attempt to expand communism, a strategic challenge to the Allied position in the eastern Mediterranean and the Middle East. This situation was compounded when in February 1947 the British informed the Americans that they could no longer shoulder the burden of supporting the Greek government and commitments in the eastern Mediterranean by themselves. This galvanized the Truman administration to provide support to Greece and Turkey in what became the Truman Doctrine. As we have seen in past episodes, Truman threatened the Republican Congress that if Greece and Turkey fell to communism, then communism would spread to the rest of Europe, the Middle East, Africa, and Asia, and that the Soviets were seeking world domination. Truman and many in the administration knew that the Soviets didn't actually want world domination, but they needed the necessary fear in Congress and the nation to get the required funding to stabilize the situation in Greece and Turkey. As Senator Vandenberg told the president, quote, scare the hell out of them, close quote. The Truman administration would later point to the communist actions in Greece and Soviet pressure in Turkey to help justify the Marshall Plan. If you're interested in the Marshall Plan, check out episode 9. This policy of fear was effective, but would backfire as the Republicans became ever more militant in their approach to communists and the Soviet Union, especially during the second Red Scare with the witch hunts of Senator Joseph McCarthy. Thus, it became the policy of the United States to support the, quote, free people who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or by outside pressures, close quote, and what became the larger U.S. policy of containment. To learn more about the U.S. strategy behind containment, I would recommend checking out Episode 8 of our series, America Rearms. 
Congress approved $400 million in military and economic aid to Greece and Turkey. Increased American aid helped defeat the communists after the interim defeats of the Greek government forces from 1946 to 1948. The Greek government then relocated thousands of suspected communists and their families to internment camps in order to starve out the communists. The communists also failed to get large-scale support from either the Soviets or Yugoslavs. The insurgents were also demoralized by the bitter split between Stalin and Tito, which we reviewed in our last segment. In June 1948, the Soviet Union and its satellites broke off relations with Tito. In one of the meetings held in the Kremlin with Yugoslav representatives during the Soviet-Yugoslav crisis, Stalin stated his opposition to the Greek uprising. Stalin explained to the Yugoslav delegation that the situation in Greece had always been different from the one in Yugoslavia, because the U.S. and Britain would, quote, never permit Greece to break off their lines of communication in the Mediterranean, close quote. Yugoslavia had been the Greek communist's main supporter, thus they had to choose between its loyalty to the Soviet Union and its relations with its closest ally. After some internal conflict, the great majority chose to follow the Soviet Union. Tito closed the Yugoslav border to the Greek communists in July 1949 and disbanded its camps inside Yugoslavia. The Greek communists were still able to use the Albanian border territories, a poor alternative. Within the Greek Communist Party, the split with Tito also sparked a witch hunt for Titoists that demoralized and disorganized the ranks of the Greek communists and sapped support for them in urban areas. The Greek government and allied governments saw the end of the Greek Civil War as a victory in the Cold War against communism. Although the Soviets never actively supported the Greek communist efforts to seize power in Greece militarily. For the next 25 years, Greece was ruled by a combination of conservative politicians, the army, and shadowy American-backed paramilitary organizations. In summation, although the Greek Communist Party represented a danger to the government, the Greek government was far from the liberal democracy of, quote, free peoples, close quote, that Truman had described. In contrast, the U.S. and Britain protected a lawless, right-wing, dysfunctional democracy. Moreover, Stalin never had any intentions of installing a Marxist state there, despite what Truman was telling Congress and the American people. The last nation that we will examine is Turkey. Turkey was founded upon the ruins of the Ottoman Empire in 1922. The Ottoman Empire was a gunpowder empire founded in 1299 by Osman I in northwestern Anatolia, or contemporary Turkey, after the conquest in the Balkans by Murad I between 1362 and 1389, the Ottoman Sultanate was transformed into a transcontinental empire and claimant to the Caliphate. During the 16th and 17th centuries, at the height of its power under the reign of Suleiman the Magnificent, the Ottoman Empire was a multicultural, multilingual empire controlling much of southeastern Europe, western Asia, the Caucasus, North Africa, and the Horn of Africa. With Constantinople as its capital and the control of the lands around the Mediterranean basin, the Ottoman Empire was at the center of interactions between the Eastern and Western world for six centuries. However, beginning in the 18th century, the Ottoman Empire began to technologically fall behind the West. This corresponded with a long period of military setbacks against European powers. The Ottoman Empire would thus gradually decline into the late 19th century. In the early 20th century, the empire allied with Germany, with the imperial ambition of recovering its lost territories, joining in World War I. While the empire was able to largely hold its own during the conflict, it was struggling with internal dissent, especially with the Arab revolt and its Arabian holdings. The defeat and dissolution of the Ottoman Empire began the Second Constitutional Era, a moment of hope and promise established with the Young Turk Revolution, 
It restored the Ottoman Constitution of 1876 and brought in multi-party politics with a two-stage electoral system under the Ottoman Parliament. The Armistice of Mordos was signed on the 30th of October 1918 and set the partition of the Ottoman Empire under the terms of the Treaty of Service. The treaty, as designed in the Conference of London, allowed the Sultanate to retain its position and title. The occupation of Constantinople led to the establishment of a Turkish national movement which won the Turkish War of Independence from 1919 to 1922 under the leadership of Mustafa Gamil, later surnamed Ataturk. The Sultanate was abolished on the 1st of November 1922, and the last Sultan, Mehmed VI, left the country on the 17th of November 1922. The Caliphate was officially abolished on the 3rd of March 1924. For about the next 10 years, the country saw a steady process of secular, secular westernization through Ataturk's reforms, which included the unification of education, this discontinuation of religious and other titles, the closure of Islamic courts, and the replacement of Islamic canon law with a secular civil code modeled after Switzerland's and a penal code modeled after the Italian penal code. Recognition of the equality between the sexes and the granting of full political rights to women on the 5th of December 1934. During World War II, Turkey maintained neutrality. Ambassadors from the Axis powers and allies intermingled in Ankara, the new Turkish capital. Uh, Turkey did, however, sign a non-aggression pact with Germany on the June the 18th, 1941. By August 1944, the Axis were clearly losing the war and Turkey broke off relations. Only in February 1945 did Turkey declare war on Germany and Japan, a symbolic move that allowed Turkey to join the, the future United Nations. The Soviet Union and Stalin, though, were interested in gaining control of the Dardanelles and Bosphorus Straits that connect the Black Sea with, with the Mediterranean Sea. Whoever wielded control or tra of traffic through the straits could use them as an exit or entry point for naval forces and trade to traverse to and from the Black Sea. Control of the Straits would give the Soviets permanent access to the eastern Mediterranean, increasing their influence in that region and in the Middle East. This ambition was not new, though. The Tsarist Russian Empire had for centuries coveted the Turkish Straits. Russia and the Ottoman Empire had fought 12 wars against each other over the previous three centuries. Even as late as a few months ago, a Russian fighter bomber was shot down by a Turkish fighter plane in dubious circumstances as the Russians support their ally in the current Syrian civil war. During World War I, Britain even took the risk of promising to support Russian claims to the Straits despite their hostility to Russian expansion in the region that dated back to the 19th century and the Crimean War. The Bolshevik victory, though, made this agreement between the British and the Russians null and void. Nevertheless, in 1945, with the Soviets at the peak of their power and after winning concessions from the British and Americans in Eastern Europe, Stalin pushed for control of the Straits, demanding territorial concessions from Turkey. The Turkish government rejected these claims, but the Americans and British were open to ideas of demilitarizing the Straits and making it internationally free waterway. But by 1946, with the changing perception of the Soviet Union, the Allies came to see Soviet control of the Dardanelles as a threat to Allied positions in the Middle East and Eastern Mediterranean, in addition to a strategic threat to the Suez Canal. In the period of months from the summer to autumn of 1946, the Soviet Union increased its naval presence in the Black Sea, having Russian vessels perform maneuvers near the Turkish shores. A substantial number of ground troops were dispatched to the Balkans. Buckling under the mounting pressure from the Soviets, in a matter of days, Turkey appealed to the United States for aid. 
After consulting his administration, President Truman sent a naval task force to Turkey. On October the 9th, 1946, the respective governments of the United States and the United Kingdom reaffirmed their support for Turkey. The Americans dispatched the FDR carrier battle group to the eastern Mediterranean, along with a detachment of Marines. Not wanting to escalate the situation further, the Soviets eased pressure on Turkey. On the 26th of October, the Soviet Union withdrew its specific request for a new summit on the control of the Turkish Straits, but not its opinions, and sometime shortly thereafter pulled out most of its military forces from the region. Turkey abandoned its policy of neutrality and accepted uh, $100 million in U.S. economic and defense aid under the 1947 Truman Doctrine and subsequently joined NATO in 1952. In summation, Stalin's gamble to apply pressure to gain control of the Straits backfired. Turkey, a nation that probably would have become neutral in the Cold War, was driven into the arms of the Americans who were willing to come to its aid because it served their interest to secure the position in the eastern Mediterranean and Middle East. In conclusion, I hope this episode, with its three parts, has given you a different perspective on the Cold War and a deeper understanding of the region's history. I want to thank you for listening to Episode 10, Part 3, Cold War in the Mediterranean. Make sure you join us for our next episode, The Berlin Airlift, the first showdown of the Cold War. The Berlin blockade was the first time that Stalin tried to directly apply political force to the Allies. It was one of the first flashpoints where U.S. and Soviets came close to war. So join us as we discuss Stalin's strategy and learn how the U.S. almost surrendered Berlin to the Soviets. So make sure you catch our next episode on July the 15th, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook at the History of the Cold War podcast and Twitter at Cold War Podcast, all one word. To find our latest news and Cold War content, or feel free to email questions to coldwarpodcast at gmail, Cold War Podcast, again, one word. And don't forget to check out our newest website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, History of the Cold War Podcast, all one word, and to donate so we can keep bringing you more great episodes. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.